Well, let's start today. I've done it purposely a little differently uh, with prayer. Father, <clears throat> I just come to you this morning thankful for what you're doing among us here at Calvary Chapel, Sarasota, and I know that you're working in churches uh, all over our area and all over America and around the world. And I just pray that you'll help us, Father, to be part of a real revival of, of trust in you that the world can see, and so they can see that there is a way, uh, just one way, but it's the way and the best way. And so I pray this morning that you will fill me with your spirit and help me as I teach this particular passage of Scripture. I thank you for the way you supplied all of our needs through the giving in this church and how you've taken care of us for all of this time, Father. And I know that your Holy Spirit is present among us when we meet, and so speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, we're going to be starting in just a moment at verse 17. And uh, uh, just a very, very short review. Paul is dealing with problems in the Corinthian church from a distance. He's been there for 18 months, and he taught them, and now all kinds of things have gone wrong and, uh, in the church because of the surrounding culture, which is a very difficult culture for them. And some people in the church are trying to mix the culture along with the idea of what a Christian is all about, and Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, and then later 2 Corinthians, to try to correct uh, all of that. And I talked last week a little bit about the uh, idea of listening to only one side of a, of a telephone conversation, uh, and so you listen to only the side you can hear, you can't hear the other side, and so it's a little bit of a mystery sometime what is being talked about. And that happens a lot in 1 Corinthians, especially in this passage of Scripture from verse 17 to the end. Uh, Paul is answering some questions for, for a very specific reason that you'll find out about. The problem is that we, you will find out that he's answering the questions for a specific reason, but we don't know the reason. And so it makes the passage uh, very difficult to be able to understand and apply to ourselves today. And in some ways, I'll have to warn you, this is one of the most intense uh, sermons maybe that I've preached in a long time, it's really caused me to think through greatly about exactly how I do live my Christian life. So Paul is handling these difficult problems in the Corinthian church as they try to navigate the, the people in the church, the Christians, through the temptations of the sexually immoral culture in Corinth and they were saved, and of course, everybody in the church was saved out of that culture. And Paul has been giving instruction so far in the last couple of sermons on marriage and singleness or even on celibacy. The main point of chapter 7 is, well, there it is there. Stay where you are for now. That's the main point. And it is found in three of the verses that we're looking at this morning. Verse 17, verse 21, and verse 24. And to just expand it a little bit, I would say here's the theme. Stay where you are when God calls you to salvation. So Paul develops that theme by answering every question that was brought up in a letter that Paul refers to that we don't have a copy of. So we don't know the other side of the telephone conversation. So starting at verse 17, it reads this way. Paul says, Nevertheless, each person, 
meaning each Christian, should live. The word live can be translate walk. Some of your older translations will actually say that. It's, it's to how you live life, how you walk out your Christian life. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. That's the theme of our sermon this morning, just as God has called them. And then he says, this is the rule I lay down on all the churches. This isn't anything new. This is what I talk about and preach about and preached about for you for 18 months, he's saying to them. Now, in chapter 1, Paul underlined these words. Some of you will remember them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9. Therefore, you, this is, take this personally, this is us, we do not lack any spiritual gift as we eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus, who's the Messiah, Christ, to be revealed. He will also keep us firm to the end. We can't lose our salvation. We're there. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus, who's the Messiah. So that should encourage us. We know that we're safe, and we're going to make it to the end, even though there'll be lots of stumblings on the way through. Now, we have before us an important principle to learn that will help us enjoy life right where we are when God finds us. And the key word is the word contentment. Contentment is paramount in what we're about to study. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, it's on the screen. First three words, I have Learned. Now, that word learned is really important. Have you learned? Are we learning? What does it mean, I have learned? How do you learn? You learn by being taught. You learn by reading. People that don't read uh, really not going to learn very much. And then you also learn by sharing what you have learned, and you learn by living out what you have learned. So it's all about experience in a real sense. Paul is saying, I've learned to be content through all the experiences I've had. And I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Well, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then this sort of almost famous sentence, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, through him who gives me strength. William Barclay, in his commentary, says, and I'm quoting, Paul lays down one of the first rules of Christianity. Here it is. Be a Christian where you are. So no complaining about your job or your neighborhood or your school or your pastor or your church. You've been placed there by God strategically as a calling on your life. You are where God wants you to be. But to stay in context, we must first see that Paul is talking about marriage relationships. Some people in the church had their own ideas about staying or leaving their marriage partners, and we've already studied about that quite a bit. Paul is saying that when you become a believer, you have changed. You now have a power and ability that you didn't have before. You are now a new person different than you were before. In the last two sermons, we've talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It reads this way. What this means is 
that those who become Christians become new persons. Now, if you knew the, the Greek language, you would say right away, the word for persons is the word for creation. That's why some Bibles say that we are new creations. We're not like we were before. We're not the same anymore, <coughs> for our old life is gone, and a new life has become. Becoming a Christian is a supernatural event. It's a major event in your life. <coughs> Excuse me. It may take some time to adjust to this new life, this new worldview. So Paul says, don't immediately react and try to change everything. Accept where you are. Learn to trust God. Wait for God to change both you and the circumstances. Stay put, pray, learn to be content. I believe this applies to every aspect of life. Our relationship with God is not affected by our ethnic background. Uh, it's uh, by being male or female. It's not an issue. And our status in life, our socioeconomic state, has nothing to do with who I am in Christ. Now, Paul outlined that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he was writing to the churches in the Galatian area, and he says in, in Christ, talking about those in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ, whose name is Jesus. So in the church, none of those things mean anything, really, because we're all one, we're all together, we're family. And it makes no difference spiritually what ethnic background you come from, what kind of employment you find yourself in, whether you're a man or a woman, for we are all one in Christ, all one at the foot of the cross, equal spiritually, and no one has an advantage over another in the body of Christ. Therefore, it's important to become content wherever I am and live for Jesus in that situation, trusting God to change things as he sees fit. Now, when I became a new believer, I was working in a business environment, most of you are aware of it, where making money was the primary goal. Everyone was judged by their ability to earn a large income, and I was very much part of this environment. And then I became a believer. I was no longer motivated by the pure greed that motivated me in the past. My initial reaction was to quit and find a job someplace where money wasn't the main thing. I literally started thinking as money is evil. It doesn't say that in the Bible, by the way. The love of money is evil. But I decided, no, I'm not going to be here anymore. Well, thankfully, a godly man came into my life and challenged me to use my financial ability to help the church and missionaries and those in need. My greed changed to a higher motive, and I became even more prosperous. Besides that, some of those I worked with also became believers after they observed the change in my life for a long time. Now, at first, they did not like me. They were not impressed. But they knew me really well, and they thought, he'll get over it. It'll pass. But it didn't. And it would have been a shame to have left that job when I first became a Christian at that time. There's several people that at least then would not have become believers. The principle is that we should stay where we are in life 
and make the most of it, trusting God who created the heavens and the earth to move us to a different job or a different neighborhood or a different school or a different city or even a different country. God is not hiding his will from us and he will have no problem directing changes in our lives if we're truly serving him. Now, if Christianity were simply some sort of religion where I was trying to keep the rules or match up to some standard of good, whatever that means, then this would not be good advice. But Christianity is a relationship with the living God who is personally communicating to us through his word, the Bible, and by the Holy Spirit who indwells all of us. We, all of us have the Holy Spirit as soon as we believe. In other words, we have a relationship now with God every bit as real as I have with my wife and my friends. Example, in the religious Jewish culture, circumcision was a sign of acceptance by God, a necessary sign. But now, many Jews have become Christians and we're submitting to a dangerous operation replacing what circumcision removed. I don't want to say any more about it than that. <laughs> On the other hand, some Greeks sought circumcision after they became a Christian, influenced by Jewish Christian legalists who were telling them they had to be circumcised to be true Christians. And so Paul handles that. Verse 18, was the man already circumcised when he was called? Well, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. And then here's the reason. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. In other words, obeying God. Simply put, this means that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, when saved, you should make no attempt to deny your Jewish roots or to become conformed to Jewish traditions or any other religious traditions. You're to stay just as you are. So if you're Irish when you become a Christian, you're still Irish. If you're Jewish, you're still Jewish. Your ethnic background doesn't change at all, but your worldview changes. Your nature changes. Who you are changes. You now are able to understand spiritual things that you could not understand previously as your desires are transformed. And that is why, verse 20, Paul says, each person, each Christian, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. That's when we became a Christian. God saves us to reach others right where we are. Now, verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't worry about it. Don't let it trouble you. Now, you just need to know. I don't want to go into it in detail, but you need to know slavery of that day wasn't racial. It wasn't anything like the slavery we talk about in America that's terrible. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a majority of the people in the culture were slaves. B the word bondservant in your Bible is a better uh, way of putting it, and they were mostly better off than the average person. And so, uh, but they were still owned by a master, and they had to do what they were told. And so he says, when, were you a slave when you're called? Don't, don't let it trouble you. That's fine. But if you can gain your freedom, which was possible in that time, do so. 
I like the way Tom Wright takes this verse. He says this, if you get the chance of freedom, grab it with both hands. That's the way he translates it. The point is that the slave shouldn't be spending all his or her waking hours worrying about how to become free. But if the chance suddenly comes as a gift from the owner, as often happened, or by some other means, one should take it. Now, verse 22 goes on with more. For the one who was a slave, when called, when he became a Christian, when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed man. Now, I know we always try to, uh, some of your Bibles say, and uh, freed person, but, but, but freed man is a word. It's a meaning. A freed man was uh, about uh, someone who uh, was a slave of a master and has now been free. Even if, and this happened often, that slave who's now a freed man still works for the family and still obeys everything because they're better off than they could be almost any place else. And so what, what Paul is trying to get here is that we are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. That's really his point. And so I'm going to go sort of off uh, the, the exposition here a little bit. Uh, three things that are true of every new Christian. And I've done this so many times, I love to do it because if you really grasp this, it could change your life. Three things. Number one. You as a Christian are free from sin's power. You're still a sinner, but you're free from the power of sin. Another way to say it is you no longer have to sin. Another way of saying it even is you are free not to sin. And the, the brute proof text, if you like, is Romans chapter 6, 6 and 7, where Paul writes, if we have been united with him, with Christ, with Jesus, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, this is a reality. This is what you show when you get baptized, where you're identifying with Christ. When Christ died for our sins, it's as if we died. And, and when Christ rose from the dead, as a, uh, his body was totally renewed his, he, uh, from that, he had different power now. Now we have different power too. We're totally different. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, we are sinners, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And ultimately, in glorification in heaven, we won't have the sin nature anymore, but now we're not slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, I know it's obvious, but if you ever really thought about it, if, if today you got in some kind of a, God forbid it happens, an accident and you died... You're no longer a sinner. It's, you're not, your sin nature's gone now. You're, you're the Lord. So when we die, then we're freed completely from sin. Right now, we're freed from the power of sin. We don't have to sin, and we can, there's no sin can come our way that we can't resist. Number two or three is you are free from Satan. Now, this is really important to, to, to understand. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 it reads this way, we know, we know that those who have become part of God's family do not make a practice of sinning. In 1 John, the phrase we know is used over and over again. It's very important. It means that this is something that's real to us. We know this for sure. So we know that those who have become part of God's family 
do not make a practice, a habit of sinning. Why? Because God's son, Jesus, holds them securely. We sung a song about being in, in his hand. And the evil one, that Satan, cannot get his hands on them. Now, we know that we are children of God. God's our father. Jesus says that I'm your brother. We have the Holy Spirit. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the power and control of the evil one. Now, I used to spend a little bit of time trying to prove that. I don't have to do that anymore. If, if you don't watch the news, watch it for an hour and then forget it, and you'll see that the world, what's happening today is God permitting, I don't know, somebody sent me a video, I haven't looked at it yet, but the, asking the question, is God judging America? Well, I don't really know. If he's not, I'm surprised. But at any rate, I don't really know. But I do know uh, that America has given itself over largely to the enemy, to Satan, and they don't even realize it. And, and the whole world around us is under the power and control of the evil one. You just have to look around the world these days to see that. And then the third point is, you are free from self when you are saved. This is maybe the most important one. You're free from yourself, from selfishness. John 13, 34, Jesus said to his disciples at the foot washing, a new command I give you, new command, love one another. And right away you think, oh, wait a minute, that's even in the book of Leviticus. What's new about it? Five words, most of you know them by now, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Very important. We're free from selfishness. We're free from ourselves. We're free to minister to others and forget about ourselves. Well, now let's go back to where we're at in chapter 7, verse 22. Let's go back there. In verse 22, partway in, it says, Similarly, the one who is free when called is now Christ's slave bondservant. Paul starts a lot of his letters saying that he's a slave or a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. This is powerful. Do not become slaves. What does that mean? Don't let other people control your life. I mean, you could, you could be in a country where they throw you in jail because you're a Christian, and they take, and every, they give you food when they want to give you food. They, you're under their control completely, but you can still be free. That's the picture. Even in jail, you can be free, and you're a slave of Jesus Christ, and that could take you through it. Now, sometimes one could save enough money to purchase their freedom by paying a particular god at a temple and be free because that god owned him now. That's the imagery Paul was using to understand what God has done for us. God owns us now. We don't own ourselves. We can forget about ourselves. He owns us now. And then in verse 24, it says, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, each person as responsible to God, each person as we're with God, should remain, this is the third time I said there were three verses about the theme of the sermon, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians to remain where they find themselves when they are saved. And they, we, are to be the new people that we're becoming 
a great cost to God who so loved us, he sent Jesus to die for us. So if you are saved and life circumstances for you are dismal, stay where you are and be a joyful witness for Jesus. But if you are able to rise above your circumstances and do better, there's no reason not to. We are not victims of our circumstances ever. We are victors in our circumstances. If we learn to be content right where we are and live godly lives giving him all the glory, who knows how he might work through us? I love 2 Chronicles 16.9. It reads, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's a forever verse for us. There's no limit to how many can be those people he finds. He's looking around to find people fully committed to him. So if you're already successful and enjoying life to the fullest when you're saved, great. But now you should become a willing, excited slave of Jesus Christ, desiring to do his will above your will. If you do that, then the life you thought was thrilling before will dim in comparison to what God has for you in your future. When we choose to stay where we are, even if the circumstances are difficult, God will fill our lives with love and joy and peace despite the struggles. And it's best to see the struggles as God's building blocks to make us more like Jesus. So when we remain where we are, remember, we are remaining there with God. And when those in the world see such commitment, they'll be asking about the hope within us, and we must be prepared to tell them. Now, it sort of changes here. The telephone conversation, he's changed. He's saying something different. What's he talking about? Verse 25. Now, about virgins. Now, right away, what's virgins mean here? Young, never married women. That's the best way. I'll just say young women from now on, but that's the idea. And you'll see why in a minute. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment that as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Those of us who study and teach the Bible need some humility here. I can't tell you how many commentaries I've read about this. There is much we don't know about why Paul gives the following advice. Nevertheless, it is advice. And I, for one, would listen carefully if I had a problem. And the Apostle Paul said to me, let me tell you what I think. Jesus never spoke of these things directly, but I have been shown the mercy of God. So here's what I think. Boy, would I listen. And so that's verse 26. First partial sentence reads, because of the present crisis. Now, I have to stop there and just say this much. We have no idea what he's talking about. Now, if you read all the commentaries, and you'll see why as we go through, some say, well, he's talking about the second coming of the Lord. Not really. That's always in his mind, because that's the way we're supposed to live. The Lord is coming again, for sure. And we're to live now in light of that, no matter what the circumstances are. But he's going to give some advice here because of the present crisis. And, And we really don't know the crisis. There was a famine going on at this time. We know that historically. That might be part of it. 
But there's other things it could be too, and we just don't know. Like, for instance, Paul was a religious terrorist. He was killing Christians, and it was there when Stephen, the first martyr, died. He wasn't the only one. Christians were heavily persecuted. And within the church, you had people that were legalists and had all these crazy ideas, uh, and the, 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 the culture was closing in on them in some way. So he says, because of the present crisis, I think that is good. This is his advice now. For a man to remain as he is. Now, here's what he means, verse 27. Are you pledged to a woman? Now, I know my, even most of you know this, but this isn't like being engaged. Marriages were prepared years before, were agreed upon. And, uh, and then uh, there would be a marriage, and a man would agree that this young girl, uh, that's what the word virgin really means, this young girl was to be married to him maybe two years from now. And so he would be pledged to her. And that pledge was a permanent pledge. Uh, if somebody in our church is engaged and we hear they're not engaged any longer, they broke up, we say, oh, well, they broke up. But the pledge, the only way you can break a pledge is to divorce that young girl. And so it was really important in that culture. So Paul says, are you pledged to a woman in the middle of this terrible circumstance? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? You're not pledged. Then don't look for a wife because of that circumstance. That's the frame around all the rest of this picture. This, this, the whole frame is because of the present crisis. So, but if you do marry, Paul says, you've not sinned. And if a virgin young girl marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And he says, I want to spare you this because of the present circumstances. I did a wedding yesterday and, and uh, Ella and Elliot were married. It's one of the most amazing weddings I've ever done. It was incredible. And uh, uh, I, I, I can't talk about it. <laughs> no, it was really great. I've never been at a wedding where I've seen dancing like I saw all choreographed and some of you guys over here were doing it. I was smart enough at my age not to join. And, uh, and it was great, and I'm glad they got married. And uh, yeah, they'll face troubles. Some people talk to them about that. that things will be different now in their life. But Paul is saying, uh, I just want to spare you the troubles that will happen in this present circumstance. And we'll talk about some of that in a minute. So Paul desires that the men and women in Corinth think deeply about marrying in light of the present crisis. And he wants them to count the cost of marriage in light of the difficulties in Corinth. We always should consider the timing of our marriage taking life circumstances into account. So verse 29, Paul says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Now, I don't believe he's talking about the second coming. He believes in that. He talks about it all the time. People say, well, Paul thought he, Jesus was coming in his lifetime. Well, I do too. So everybody does. It could come at any time. No, no, he's saying uh, the time is short because of how everything is closing in on this present crisis, things are coming to a boil here. And so therefore we need to be do things a little differently. So from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. 
and those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Why? For this world in its present form is passing away. It's passing away. Of course it is. You know, and no matter what the circumstances are, I've lived long enough to see all kinds of present crisis. And, and they close in and they pass away. And yes, the world is ultimately passing away. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and all of that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Gordon Fee writes this. Listen very carefully to this. The analogy of the terminally ill comes to mind. For those who have made peace with it, that they got a dangerous diagnosis from the doctor and a time limit, the amount of time left is less in the forefront than is the change of perspective. They see, hear, and value in a new way. Now, I've known a lot of people that have gotten these kind of diagnoses, some of my very good friends. But I'd add that those who recover from the diagnosed disease tend to continue to living living in the new perspective. It changes their life to the good. And I can point to somebody right now that I especially admire because of that. So that is why Paul wants those in Corinth who are married to be living for the Lord while they're married. That is why they, we are to rise above the sadness that comes to every life. We're in a war. We're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. We talked about that on Wednesday night. In a war, uh, and you're in a, uh, you're in a firefight in a war, uh, the fact that your knee is sore, your back hurts, or, uh, or you feel really lousy just goes by the wayside as you're with your friends fighting in that war, overcoming whatever the difficulties are. And that's the way we're to live our lives. That is why Paul wants us to be careful that we don't trust the material things for our security. As he says here, we're to live as if we had none. In other words, we don't trust in our 401 accounts and we don't trust in our, uh, our various uh, monies and extra houses we own and all of those things. They could disappear overnight. And so we're to live. Uh, we have to take care of all that, but we're to live as if we're just trusting God. No matter what happens, we're trusting God. That is why we must have an eternal outlook, yearning for eternity, rather than trying to make this temporal life heaven on earth. And I've used the term now a couple of times uh, since not using it for ages. We need to be eschatological men and women. Okay, Jesus is coming again. I am looking forward to that. I can hardly wait till the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise, all of that kind of stuff. I, I want, I'm looking forward to that. Therefore, it changes how I live now. I live in light of what the end is, and the end is fantastic. So it's all about priorities, isn't it? And priorities change as circumstances change. The circumstance, when Paul wrote this letter, was this impending present crisis. And that can change how we do everything. Example. 9-11, that's in my memory, of course. <laughs> I can remember everything about it. But in 9-11, there were many stories, and I know some incidences myself where people were about to get married, but they chose not to at that time 
because of the impending crisis. We thought that maybe other places were going to be blowing up in America. Maybe we're going to be in a big world war again. And so young men were saying to their fiancés, we'll get married later. I'm going to war. I'm going to join the armed forces. And there were others who were in marriages uh, who said, listen, I know we're married and everything, but we, you know we've got lots of help here. I'm signing up, and I'm going to, uh, to join the Marines the, uh, uh, or the Navy. I mean, that's where I joined because it's a senior service and all of that kind of thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? It changes the way that we live how we're living. And verse 32, he writes, 32, I would like you to be free from concern. This word concern is used in different ways here. Paul is saying, I, I, want you to be, I don't want you to be worrying about all this. A non-married man is concerned in the right way about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. And now that kind of man would make a great husband, by the way. Verse 33, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Of course he is even if he's, is the illustration I use, going to possibly go to war. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a young woman, a virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, so she'd make a great wife. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. That has to put that into all of her thinking. So Paul is saying in his advice, verse 35, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to throw a noose around your neck. But that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord because of this, during this present crisis. Now, someone might say that if everyone felt like Paul, there'd be no more marriage, and that would spell the end of the church. That's like saying that because we emphasize foreign missions so much, everyone will soon be on the foreign mission field and no one will be left in the church to support them. I assure you that neither of these scenarios will ever happen. That is why Paul wrote so much about how to be married and made it completely clear that you were not ever doing wrong if you preferred marriage over singleness, as some in the church clearly were doing. There is no other place I know of in Scripture where we are being urged to think for ourselves more than here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and also into chapter 8. Paul is laying down principles and spirit-led opinions and leaving the decisions up to us. Paul is trying to move the Corinthians to think and act biblically rather than the way the world thinks and acts. And in verse 36, he writes... If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and now you know they shouldn't use the word engaged, he's committed to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. Or I would say if a couple are engaged, they must not have a sexual relationship until they get married, and if they are tempted, they must get married or get apart. Verse 37, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, he's made no promises, he's not engaged, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the young girl, this man also does the right thing. So then, 
He who marries the young woman does right. He who does not marry her does better. Better? How, how, he does better because of the current crisis that is coming to a climax because he'll be doing something about it. And then Paul ends this section of his letter by affirming the importance of the permanency of marriage. Verse 39 and 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Mixed marriages don't work. In my judgment, Paul says, that she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So that's his advice. Now somebody's thinking, so Pastor Carl, what is this to do with me today? What is the impending crisis of our time? Well, it would be easy for me to develop a description of an impending crisis. We could talk about the sexual revolution or the tragedy of abortion or the crisis of secularism. I could develop a case for more aggressive evangelism or the need for a ministry of apologetics combating the postmodern thinking that has taken the underpinning of truth out of our society. I could demonstrate how the lack of absolutes in our society is a major cause of much of our crime or the possibility of recession, rising interest rates, government overreach. Oh, and there's much more. It can almost overwhelm us into a paralyzing fear. But there'll always be such a list. There's never been a time in human history when there were not many overwhelming problems. So instead, I'll remain biblical and remind us that Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins. He has risen from the dead. He has given us the great commission. We are to be on the go at all times, making disciples, telling others about their need for a Savior, helping them grow in grace as they become part of the church, the body of Christ. We are to have a sense of urgency in doing all this because Jesus is coming again. All the signs point to the soon coming of Jesus. There's a rise of false prophets. Jesus told us to watch Israel as a sign of the end times. Israel's back in the land, which is an anthropological miracle. Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars, disturbances in the weather, earthquakes, heat waves, hurricanes, tornadoes, and the list goes on, all pointing to the fact that this world in its present form is passing away. Thus the rhetoric of Paul. Therefore, if you're married, live as if you were not. In other words, make time for the urgency of evangelism and serving in the church. If you're wealthy, use your wealth for the benefit of the gospel. If you're sick or in pain, live above your circumstances with the help of others for the sake of those who need Jesus. And if you're single or divorced or widowed, dedicate your life and gifts and service to others in the church for the glory of God. A revived church might just be the instrument God uses to save many and change the world around us during this present crisis. And finally, if you're not saved, if you have never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how you can live with any kind of peace ever. And I'm not making a joke about, like, watch TV for an hour 
any, any news channel, doesn't matter what it is. And uh, I can't do it anymore, hardly at all. I just shake my head and say, that's so stupid, that's so dumb, that's so crazy. What is going on? Well, I know what's going on. And so if you're not saved, then none of this will make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but then you won't know the truth. You won't know the hope that there is when we're saved and we know Jesus is coming again and he is doing all that he's doing. He's allowing all of this to happen for the sake of the good news of the gospel of Jesus that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And so all we have to do is admit that we're sinners. That's pretty easy to prove. And, uh, and that we can't stop sinning, that we're going to, even in our thought life, Jesus said, that's enough to keep you out of heaven. So he died for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven of our sins if we receive him into our life, to as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God. And so all you'd have to do is pray a prayer. If you're online, uh, you could pray a prayer just saying, uh, listen, Jesus, I need help. I'm a sinner, and I want to be saved, and I want to know I'm going to heaven so that in my present circumstance of life, I can experience that real joy that is promised for those who are Christians. And so please save me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. And if we pray that in any form at all and really mean it, God will meet us where we are and will help you. You can call me anytime you want. There's my phone number on the screen, and uh, we'd be glad to tell you what the next step is. So let's all stand and we'll pray together and then worship some more. Father, I just come to you this morning so glad, really, for this passage because we are in a present crisis in our country and the world's in a present crisis. And Father, our present crisis is nowhere near as bad as somebody that's in the Ukraine and other places in the world and I'm sure... Jim and the, those from Senegal will have some stories to tell us, uh, Father, the need around the world is the gospel. So I pray if there's anyone here tonight, this morning, I'm sorry, this morning, or online watching who have never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would enable them right now to just pray, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I want to live uh, the right way. Please show me how to do that. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead, I want to become a Christian. And if you pray that, then God will really reach down and change you like you can hardly believe. It'll be amazing. And then for the rest of us, Father, help us to live life with our top priority being obeying you and loving you. And then you'll take all these other things and you'll help us put them together as we study your word and as we trust in you and learn to live victoriously in all circumstances. In Jesus' name.